Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. I have a brief important announcement. We finally have a new website. Beautiful Teaching not only produces this podcast, but also offers private consultations, as well as online courses for parents and teachers, professional development for schools, and a plethora of suggested curricular resources. So we finally have a new website where you can access everything all in one place. Visit beautifulteaching.com to discover how we help both parents and teachers. Our team has curated several fantastic book lists, and they are also offering some really great courses online this summer. You can meet our consulting team at beautifulteaching.com. In addition, Karen Glass, myself, and Kiernan Fiore will be speaking online at a national conference on July 14th. We will be answering questions about Charlotte Mason and her connection to classical education. To register for this virtual conference, see our show notes for Season 3, Episode 13, which is my interview with Dr. Christopher Perrin. Anyone who registers before June 30th will be eligible to win one of two free courses with Beautiful Teaching. So check out the show notes for Season 3, Episode 13 for that link to that conference and visit our new website, beautifulteaching.com. Thanks for listening. I am delighted and just filled with joy today to introduce to you a person who I have admired for a long time. I have learned a lot from, and so I'd like to welcome to our program today, Dr. Christopher Perrin. Thank you for having me, Adrian. I'm so glad to be here. It's an honor to have you here, and I struggled with coming up with questions because there's about 10,000 I could ask, but I decided that... The focus of our conversation today today is how we can help parents understand what classical education is and to make sure that it's a right fit for their family. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is a topic that, uh, like, I don't think I've had any episodes specifically to this topic. I Mm -hmm. think that it's a very important topic, and I know that you're doing a lot of amazing work in this area with the launch of your Classical U uh, courses, especially the ones that you've now launched for parents. And I think that that work is brilliant and extremely important and a long time overdue. Um, And so I really want to dive in with you on how we can help parents understand this. Um, And so I think maybe walking us through the history of classical education and taking us through some areas that you think parents uh, may struggle with in the movement um, that you you could offer and just get us started on on where we start with helping parents understand what this is. You know, it's it's a common question, um, Adrian, and it's it's of course, it's understandable. Uh, the question being, well, what is classical education? Uh, people are hearing about it more and more. Um, it's coming up um, more often now in in the media, uh, and so people might might hear about it in passing and and then wonder what it is. Uh, it's quite easy to do a little inter- internet search as well and and start to get some descriptions uh, about what it is. Um, from podcasts like your own, uh, articles, Wikipedia, uh, uh, various uh, sites that have now popped up over the last 40 years to support the renewal, um, people are hearing about it. 20 years ago, it was a different question, um, or at least uh, the the kind of information people had about it would be uh, would be more sketchy than it is now. People, you can do some research now, but it's still a challenging question, and the reason why is Classical education describes something that's long, old, large, deep, wide, and integrated. It's like asking the question, 
Well, the analogy that comes to mind is if someone had known nothing about the Christian faith, had been grown up, say, in a in a place where they just had really learned virtually nothing about Christianity, its history and its doctrines and beliefs and practices, and then ask the question, having met a Christian, so what does it mean to be a Christian? Where would you start? Yeah. Um, because would you start with Genesis? <laughs> uh, moved, might, uh, but there's a, so many ways that you could enter into that conversation. and then, But to explain it to somebody who knew so little about it, it would be very challenging. Uh, G.K. Chesterton muses on this when in his little book, Orthodoxy, and he's musing on the question, why do you believe in Christianity? And he says, that's a difficult question to answer. Because it's like answering the question, why do you believe in civilization instead of yeah. instead of savagery? What would what would you say? Well, he begins to kind of survey the the parameters of that question. He says, well, I, how well, the electric lights, uh, this motor car, uh, that taxi over there, uh, that lamppost, uh, you know, everything seems to be an argument for civilization when you live in the midst of it. So it's hard to know where to start because it's big. And it would be hard to know how to start talking to someone completely unaware of the Christian faith to, to begin to answer their question. And it's not quite the same, but it's analogous when someone says, well, what is classical education? Because it does have a long history. It's It has a lot of different facets. So I often think... And now, we know something about it because it's never really completely gone away. Another complication to the question is the fact that classical education wasn't called classical education until about 100 years ago when it was replaced by progressive education. So what did we call classical education about 100 years ago? Education. But now education has come to mean so many different things that we need some kind of a a modifier or adjective to qualify what we mean when we talk about education as classical education. But the word classical, of course, means something old, enduring, true, excellent, something that has been proven to be uh, good and helpful. So uh, even the word classical is starting to give us a clue to what it means. Now, your listeners are probably thinking, gosh, he's not answering the question. <laughs> Because oh yeah, you you're getting there. I, I I do. I would like to throw something in though. You're you're there, but just to um for our listeners to even just like coming back on the word education. Okay, yeah. you're going down a really great path, and I know where you're going. It's great, but coming back to the word education is so important. I was uh, presenting last summer to a group of parents, and I realized they needed to understand what the word education means. And so I looked. I googled it. So here, just, I think this is super important for parents to hear. The Google definition of education is the process of receiving or giving systematic instruction, especially at a school or university. That's it. So homeschool is totally left out of it. But if you go look at Webster's 1828 definition of education, it says, the bringing up as of a child instruction, formation of manners, Education comprehends all that se that series of instruction and discipline, which is intended to enlighten the understanding, correct the temper, inform the manners and habits of youth, and fit them for usefulness in their future stations, to give children a good education in manners, arts, and sciences is important. To give them a religious education is indispensable, and an immense responsibility rests on parents and guardians who neglect these duties. And I, I bring that up because what a major change in how we define education today. And I think where you're going is, let's look back at what education means traditionally. Yeah, so when, when Webster was working on the dictionary, I think in 1828 or so, mm -hmm. he was working with an understanding of education that we would now call classical. Exactly. The definition that you found uh, on Google represents modern progressive ideas. And the word, words do change. The meanings of words change over time. They evolve. Uh, and so that's okay. But it's also okay to go back to what words used to mean and try to recover them, even if we have to use new words or if we have to qualify. 
So education generally means instruction and training today, and it usually is focused on some utilitarian or instrumental end like a job. So anything can be an education, but it used to be very clear that there was job training and that was good and noble and needed. Like if you need to be, learn how to be a carpenter, this is a good thing, but that was not an education. That was training, right? training and instruction. But education is is along the lines, as it traditionally understood along the lines of what Webster said there. It's formation. It's moral formation. He mentions habits, virtues. He mentions uh, religious training and, and education. If you go back even further and look at the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, you'll find a, a long entry describing what education used to be considered to be. And it's, it's, it's education that is forming our, our, our humanity to love the true, the good, and the beautiful by means of the liberal arts and the treasury of wisdom contained in humanity, usually in the great books. So that's one place to start with the definition. I, on, on my on my podcast, which is what, what do I what do we call it? Oh, the Christopher Perrin Show. <laughs> I do, <laughs> I do, and my and my Substack. Uh, I do a, a piece on this very question, Adrian. The 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 history of the word education, mm-hmm. and I, do, I look at a number of words that we need to look at and recover again. So, educatio in Latin comes from a verb, educare, which means to lead out, and to, and it's like development, formation. Now that can be a metaphor; it can mean a lot of other things, but it means this full rearing, raising, building up, forming, shaping a human being to be the best version of himself or herself. Uh, if you were to go to Harvard in say the 1840s and uh, uh, to to get a, an education, there there were no majors. You couldn't you couldn't major in nursing. You couldn't major in engineering. You couldn't major in music or education. Everybody went through a common liberal arts curriculum, reading great texts, learning the classical languages, and and science, the natural sciences, uh, and lots of discussion and reading and contemplation of the things that have been considered to be universally good, true, and beautiful. So there's nothing wrong with job training. There's nothing wrong with focusing on acquiring various skills that do lead to employment. But that just typically has not been understood to be education. So already we're starting to get into your question. Well, what is classical education? It's not job training. Now, studying the liberal arts and the great books and the treasury of human wisdom in conversation with like-minded people and teachers who are all infused with a love for one another and God and the cosmos, this forms somebody in a wonderful way that will prepare him or her to be an excellent carpenter. I mean, that's the kind of carpenter I want, but it prepares you to be an excellent at whatever you were called to do vocationally. So it was kind of considered to be preliminary and very much auxiliary and helpful to any job, but it didn't focus first on job. It focused on training, uh, forming the human. In fact, one of the other synonyms for education in Latin was this is this is a word that was used to be to mean education in this kind of classical sense that we're trying to explore. That word was humanitas. We it still lives uh, by derivation in our word humanities, but it used to be that mathematics, geometry, astronomy, music those were considered to be humanities disciplines. Now we think it means English you know, and philosophy and history, those are the now, now those are considered the humanities. But humanitas to the Latin mind meant being formed to be a human, uh, uh, operating at peak potential as a human being, doing what humans only can do, which is to use word and number. Word being the, uh, what we learn to master via the, the trivium arts of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, sometimes called the verbal arts. And then the quadrivial arts of, you know, astronomy, uh, excuse me, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music, were the mathematical arts that help us to study the created world by understanding quantity, mass, extension, velocity, weight, etc. 
we were made so that we would use both word and number, and this is what it means to be made as a Christian, I would say, in the image and likeness of God. So you can see, you ask a question like, what is classical education? And we're already, we do go back to Genesis, and we start asking ourselves, well, what does it mean to be a human being? But there are some simpler ways of getting to the question, and there are multiple ways of answering this question. And if I were a headmaster today, I probably wouldn't start this way. I probably want to start with a metaphor and start a little more simply and work our way into some of these questions. But you started with a portal, a way into the museum, which is a, a great way in, and that's simply etymology. You said, let me look up the word. Let's define it that way by looking at the history of the word education. And already you got us into the museum, right? Now we're starting to ask questions like, did you just say moral training and habitual training in, you know, in religious and morality to be formed, to be good people? What was it that Webster said? And now we're already there. But here's some other ways you might go in. You might think about um, some analogies. And I like the analogy of the museum. So I like to say that classical education is like a beautiful museum in which there is this treasury of all kinds of wonderful things that humans have collected over centuries of trial and error and discussion and teaching and reflection and so on. Wouldn't we want to know what those things are? And what if they had been collected for us? And what if we could study them with like-minded friends? Would that be good for us? And by the way, we could immediately pivot to etymology again and say, what does museum mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word muse, which means muse, the ones who inspire us to learn in the Greek myths, the history, poetry, dance, etc. And so, um, and then what comes to mind is the word music and also the word amusement, which means to be without inspiration. And so the museum is a place where you go where you're inspired by muses to love and know deeply the things that are the most treasured, the true, the good, the beautiful. And it's interesting that in Greek, the word for essentially young children's education or elementary education was musika. That was Plato's word in the Republic for education you gave to, to young children. There's a sense in which teachers are muses, not yeah. just instructors. They're wonder workers. They're opening the, the world of wonder. They're opening up the whole cosmos. The whole world is like a living museum. And so even the word museum, there was an old, it was essentially a proto-university in Alexandria, Egypt, called the Alexandri, Alexandri, Alexandrian Museum. And it was a collection of scholars, of scrolls. It was a library. It was a place for, for teaching, discussion, scholarship. They used the word museum. So our schools... Classical schools should be something like a museum. So there's one rich metaphor, and you go from room to room, right? And once you go into a great museum like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York or the British Museum in London, once you're in, you're under a spell. It's and true. And you never, you never yeah. get the museum, right? So I'll stop there and let you respond. Yeah. But that's, that's just one analogy. Uh, I absolutely but, love this analogy. I'm sitting here just grinning ear to ear. This is the most, I have actually never heard this analogy. Um, I love museums. I love everything about what you're just saying. And I love all the word connections to it. I love, it has, wow, that is just, I'm actually in wonder and awe right now, just imagining <laughs> how classical education ought to look like a museum. I think that is a brilliant. And I love that the, the whole cosmos, the whole world is a museum and we should be taking children outside all the time because that is, situating them and posturing them in a state of wonder when you're taking them outside to just sit and be quiet, listen to the birds and draw a picture. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. It's the beginning of education. And I think one of the questions that I have though, and I'm thinking about the parent listening, I'm sitting mm -hmm. back, okay, I'm a new parent. I'm listening to this. I think one of the things um, I hear their heart and their heart is saying, well, I want all of this for my child. But mm -hmm. I want to make sure he can get, you know, he has this mind like an engineer. You know, he plays with Legos all the time. So I know that his passion is engineering. And I want to make sure I prepare him 
for a STEM education. You know, I want to prepare him to be successful in a career towards engineering. I mean, and and I know that I I've heard this a lot from parents, and it's a good, it's a good feeling that they're having that question, and it tells me that they don't quite understand how or why this education in wonder, this education in in these humanities, uh, as you put them, and, and when I think humanities, I'm I'm not thinking of all seven. I love that, that I actually did not know that. I don't know why I didn't realize all seven liberal arts were part of the humanities. But, um, but I, I think these parents are asking, well, how can I make sure I prepare my child for this this scientific engineering career. Mm-hmm. And they're asking that question because they do care, right? Yeah. So I guess maybe what we want to do is sort of help them to understand how this education probably actually prepares the student better than if they put their child in a progressive STEM-focused school. Absolutely. Um, the Learning to be an engineer is a great and good and dignified thing. So no classical educator should ever uh, in any way denigrate that and say, oh, you know, why would you do that? You know, uh, you should just be doing Latin and Greek till you, your dying day. Um, that's not the case at all. But just note, there's again, a distinction between these two goods. One is an education and one is vocational training. And your education will very much bless and inform and help your vocational training. In fact, it actually makes you a better engineer. And let's just take engineering as an example. Uh, If you were to go to a four-year college, like, you know, Messiah University is down the road from us. Uh, My wife has taught there for years in the literature department. She she was full-time until uh, this last year. Um, She would describe the engineering students coming into her literature classes and poetry classes. You know, if you're an engineering major, you get a scholarship. Uh, you might be fulfilling some parents' dreams, but they they come, and this has happened a lot. And be, the engineering organization that accredits all of the major programs around the country requires a lot of study to get your engineering degree. If you want to be uh, an accrediting program at a college offering engineering degrees, you have to meet a lot of important criteria, and those criteria are so many that engineering students get a pass on other required general curriculum courses. So they they get to they have to study less English literature and philosophy and language. Why? Because they're packed with all these engineering courses and the prerequisites lead directly to engineering. So I remember saying to an engineering student who wanted to study philosophy and do a double major. And I said, well this is or literature. It would be remarkable to have some engineers who have studied philosophy and deep study of literature. What kind of engineers would they be? And often engineers are knocked for being poor communicators, really smart and can do all kinds of calculations, but can't speak well about what they do to the to the outside world. And I remember talking to an engineer who led a group of 100 engineers, and he said, I'm by far, I am not the best engineer in this group, but I'm the best writer. That's why I lead these engineers, because so many of them can't speak and write sufficiently well. Well, I would talk to some of these engineers, say, well, why don't you do a double major? And why don't you take, go for five years? Why don't you extend your career and get that philosophy major, deepen your understanding of humanity while you're doing your vocational training? And this is when I learned this hard truth. I could do that but my scholarship stops at four years. Right. So we are, we're in a system that makes it hard for engineers to be well-rounded, to have depth outside of their professional field. And so what's happened is our colleges and universities now have had to absorb two different goals that are often in tension. One is education, often reflected in the you know, the general ed requirements where everybody has to take philosophy 101 and English Lit 101 and and, and, a, and a couple of history courses. Um, that's the remnant that says to every student at some of our colleges and universities, still probably most of them, you need to still know something of this tradition of, his, of, of the liberal arts and great books. But less and less. 
they've also absorbed they've absorbed that as a remnant and then of course they've absorbed job training so a nursing school an engineering school an education department uh, these things are all doing in international business and all kinds of business majors they're focused on jobs getting right. professional training right so what i would say to that parent is you're desiring something that's good but it's secondary to education so if you the primary thing is education secondary is job training if you make the second things the first things you disorder them and you end up doing some harm to that that the full potential development of that human being we do need engineers uh, and, and you'll find out that classically educated students i think from what i'm hearing about half or over half of them are going into science and engineering fields they love those things i'll tell you one more anecdote then i'll pass it back to you there's a a record of ernst bohr the famous uh chemistry professor and uh thinker who's describing students who come to him to do graduate work in chemistry and he says i i, I get the students from these specialized science schools who have had already a good bit of science in high school before they come to me to study chemistry in college. And then I have students coming to me who don't have that specialized science training, but they have a good, robust, classical, liberal arts education. What happens? He says the students with a specialized science training, their first year, they do do better. They do do more. They're, they're, they're ready to do chemistry in some ways that are, are superior to the classically educated students. But then he says the classically educated students begin to quickly catch up and then they pass them by. And so he ends his little quip by saying, give me a student who knows his Latin and I shall be responsible for his chemistry. So it's like it's like a bigger booster rocket, you might say, is what a classical education provides. It's a deeper, broader general education that allows students to make connections across all kinds of disciplines because they've been integrated in their thinking already. They're right. curious, they're inquisitive, and they're asking questions like, what is the relationship between chemistry and painting? Dorothy Sayers brings this up. There is a relationship, but you wouldn't know to even ask unless you've had a good general liberal arts education. So. I'll stop there, but the ideal of a well-rounded education that is typical of a, a classical liberal arts education is that it's a preparation for anything you do. That's right. That's right. That's so true. I, I'm immediately thinking of this amazing documentary that I own, and I've, I need to watch it again. I love it so much, and I hope you've seen it. It's called Tim's Vermeer. Hmm. If you haven't seen it... it <laughs> It is fantastic. It's probably on YouTube now, but Tim is Vermeer and, and Tim is a, like a millionaire. He was, I believe like a producer of star Wars or something. He created whatever they needed for all the special effects for star Wars. If I'm remembering correctly, I haven't seen the documentary in a while, um, but he's obsessed with Vermeer, Vermeer's paintings. And he, this, this Tim is an engineer. His mind thinks like an engineer. He he has that engineering mind, but he loves art. <laughs> and he said he spent years looking at Vermeer's painting, asking, what was he doing and how did he get the light in his paintings? And so he 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 already in whether I don't know what kind of education Tim had. He's probably our age. So he probably had a pretty decent education, like going back a little further, you, you, you know, mm -hmm. it's better than the kids who grew up in the eighties. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, he, he, he asked the question, how is he getting this light in his paintings? And so he goes to work to reproduce. He has no art training. Like he doesn't know how to draw or paint and he goes to work and he resets up the entire setting. And even, even uh, the queen of England lets him come see the original cause she has it. Mm. And he, he sets up the whole, he spends months and sets up the whole scenario and he does an experiment to figure out how Vermeer actually created this contraption so that he could 
capture the light. It is a fascinating documentary. And what I loved about it was I, I wanted to call him and say, can you give me some money <laughs> to help me start a school that will put like to put a program like this in a classical school? Because I felt like what he was doing was what class should be happening in high school in classical schools, because he was approaching it in such a way that I'm like, this is the type of experiment that kids in classical schools should be doing. And so hopefully you'll watch the documentary hmm. and maybe some of our listeners will, and we can maybe have a conversation about it on Facebook, putting that out there for challenge my listeners. Let's, let's have a talk about this because I think it would be a fascinating, um, there could be a fascinating grant and program to to add some elements of what he's doing into a classical school. Um, and I think parents and kids would love it. But um, it, it, it's rare to, to see or to have a conversation with somebody who's an engineer that actually knows a lot about art because they didn't get that education. No, no that's right. We, 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 specialize, we specialize too soon. By the way, this has been explored and written about by some people outside of the classical renewal. Um, it's, it's Daniel or David Epstein wrote a book a few years ago called Range, why generalists triumph in an age of specialists. And he essentially ends up challenging Malcolm Gladwell's thesis that the best way to get really good at a discipline is to start when you're young and practice, practice, practice with a good coach deliberate practice with regular coaching to improve. And, and this does actually work in, a, in some friendly disciplines like golf and the violin. Uh, Tiger Woods is cited as an example by Malcolm Gladwell. If you want to be a great golfer, well, have a dad like Tiger's dad who was already a scratch golfer but was an Army teacher and retired early in his 40s and then just decided that when Tiger was born, he was going to train him almost from birth, to be a golfer. And so he started training him from age two, three, four, right at the beginning, as soon as he could. And so he had deliberate practice and training and became one of the great golfers. And then you have Mozart, whose dad also was a great violinist in his own right and a teacher. And Mozart was trained by his dad at a very young age. And so there's this 10,000, uh, the 10,000 hour study that was done in various forms that says, if you want to be the best you can at any in any discipline, you need to practice at it for 10,000 hours. It's about three hours a day for 10 years, doing deliberate practice, being coached, getting corrected all along the way, and you'll become the best you could ever be at that discipline. And the people who are really the great violinist, who are, you know, get to Juilliard, et cetera, well, there's that, that's a part of their profile. A really, really good violinist may have done 5,000 hours. But the very great ones, you know, have done the 10,000 hours. Well, Epstein looks at this phenomenon. He says, well, that seems to be true in some disciplines. But you know what? It's true in golf. It's not true in tennis. Because in tennis, you're not just swinging at a stationary ball over and over again. You're swinging at a ball that's coming at you in, from various directions and delivered by somebody who wants to trip you up. <laughs> you have to be able to engage and interact creatively with an opponent in tennis. And he says the great tennis players don't have that profile. Roger Federer does not have that profile. He played all kinds of sports before he settled in on tennis. And then he starts looking at science and all kinds of other disciplines. And his research is showing that you generalize first and specialize second if you want to dominate in that specialty with a few exceptions, like golf and the violin and some others. So I thought that's very interesting that a, another writer is saying, yeah, we need uh, a general education in order to become really powerful and effective in any particular uh, vocation. So to me, this I would say to the parent who's thinking, I want my son or daughter to be an engineer, I say, oh, that's nothing wrong with that. But give them a liberal education first and alongside. Plan to have your daughter do a double major. Plan to have her stay for five years so that she will go into the engineering field, not only being a great engineer, but the best communicator in her engineering group. Mm -hmm. Here's another problem with engineering. I'll pitch it back to you. 
<laughs> engineers often end up doing tedious, monotonous work. You, you, and I've talked to engineers who've been in a. I know one engineer whose profession was helping design circuit boards for cell phones. And once you get good at that, often you're asked to do just that. You just do, you become an expert in a particular area and you do that over and over again. I know an engineer works with water treatment plants. That's all he does is water treatment plants. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to do something outside of a particular field. Uh, I'm not saying there isn't interesting work within in these various subdisciplines, sure. but I know of engineers who get bored. Right. Who are the ones who are creative, who are able to actually not just do engineering calculations and build things, but who are the ones who can build businesses and hire other engineers and sell that engineering, uh, you know, uh, services and so forth to all kinds of other businesses that need them. These people have to be, they have to be agile and versatile. They have right. to be communicators. So when is the mastery of the English tongue? When is the mastery of language not going to help you? Right. If you were, right. if you mastered English, it's going to help you as an engineer or a carpenter or a plumber or a professor or a senator or a bricklayer or, a, you know, a, 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 business, a new business owner. So the liberal arts do liberate you, set you free. Yeah. So, so these parents who are struggling with this, I'm hoping we're helping them. What questions should they be asking themselves instead? That's a great way to put it. Um, I think they should, you know, if if we typically send our kids off to college at 18, the question that we should be asking up up through their 18th birthday and and when they go off to college is is my is my son or daughter learning to love the things that are lovely? Are they developing a spirit of inquiry or holy curiosity? such that they see this world as a living museum and love making connections? And are they also having opportunities to apprentice with other um, thoughtful professionals, writers, humans, teachers, parents, so they can see and, uh, and travel with people who are doing the kinds of things they imagine they might want to do? especially those uh, parents who are homeschooling, you have the freedom to do this. Uh, I, I know, I was just on a call yesterday with a senior developer who does coding for a big uh, coding firm. He was homeschooled, thoughtful Christian young man, probably around 30. He did not even go to college, but he's read, read, read. He's self-educated and he apprenticed with other 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 people who were doing coding in his uh, middle and high school years and he was hired by a big firm when he was 18 because he was already capable of he had already learned that skill of coding and by the way coding is a skill that you can learn without going to college right um so this because it's a vocational skill just like carpentry um it you know or similar to carpentry so I'm not making an argument for skipping college at the moment. I'm just saying apprentice apprenticing makes a difference. It did in this in this young man's life. So therefore, your those those years before you go off to college and even perhaps while you're in college are years when you get to explore. And it's a great privilege right. to have the leisure, even when you're a teenager, to read, think, discuss, and explore the cosmos and grow as a human being. And do the things that human beings love to do. There are many business people. I know of people like this who gone into business and made a, made a good living. And, you know, they might be a little bit like this person, Tim, and Tim's Vermeer. They look at teachers and people who are exploring ideas and reading and, and doing art and making art and loving art. And they are, they look wistfully at them saying, I wish I could do that because my soul is hungry for that, but I'm out here making a living in this particular vocation. And so they, in some cases, like perhaps Tim, they try to do both and that's mm -hmm. good. 
And if you've been educated so that you can do both, you can be a business person and a lover of painting and maybe even be a painter. Um, I know of a person who's a headmaster and a painter, and he now he's retired from being a headmaster and he paints full time. I mean, I think it's lovely. I, know I think I know. I think I, think you know, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and and I, know, I know professors who are, you know, like uh, concert level musicians. And they keep the their yeah. instrument going throughout their life because it it infuses their life with great meaning. Yeah, I want to say one thing to our parents who are listening. The word leisure is super important. If I don't, we could do a whole podcast on leisure with Dr. Perrin, maybe next time. But if you hear the word leisure when people are talking about classical education, uh, it's a really important word. Uh, you might want to read the book Leisure: The Basis of Culture as a starting point. Um, and I, I, it may be important. Maybe you could just define leisure a little tiny bit for just a few minutes before we get into all the wonderful resources that you offer that I want our listeners to hear about. Well, sure. I mean, I'm sorry. You know, you press these buttons and I kind of <laughs> go. Uh, we still haven't really adequately defined classical education. We have <laughs> a good thing. But you know, there's a, I've got a list of metaphors that I would also share with you. Uh, for example, the table, feasting at the table. It's a mm -hmm. great metaphor. Uh, the sense in which we're preparing a banquet for students. And that's another way to answer the, your, your, your last question. What, do you, what, should, what should parents be asking? How do I prepare a banquet of the, of the lovely, the true, the good, the beautiful for my children so that they have a taste for love uh, and love for the good? Going all all their life long. If you could, if you could impart to your children a love of music, or a love of painting, or a love of language, studying language, many languages, that would stay with your child forever. That 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 what a gift that would be, regardless of what their vocation might be. I was talking to Dana, Dana Joya, the poet uh, about 15 years ago, we, we talked a, about Latin after a talk he gave at the local university. And I, I asked him, so what, what do you think about study of Latin? He says, I love Latin. I use it every day. And he's a poet and he was a businessman, but he says, Latin is like a little genie that speaks to me, <laughs> me all the time. So this is what the liberal arts do, studying the liberal arts and studying the treasury of human wisdom. You it's not like Googling something. You have like a like like a, an angel who's traveling with you, whispering in your ear uh, at the right times, things that, that are, are worth thinking about in various uh, you know, endeavors and enterprises. But to get to your question about leisure, yeah, leisure uh, is, you know, it comes from the French, but it really is a translation of a Greek word, which is, and it kind of means, leisure, leisure essentially means free time. But it's a translation of a Greek word, skole, and skole is a Greek word that ironically is the root for our word school, and the word for school in Italian, scola, Spanish, escuela, French, ecole, German, school, Latin, scola. From the Greek word skole, we get all these words that can mean school and education. But what it meant originally was something like undistracted time to study the things that are most worthwhile, usually in a beautiful place, and usually with good friends, and usually with good food and drink. Aristotle talks about this in his, like, the seventh or eighth book of po politics. Scolae is what the human, is one of the highest human activities. We desire to to sit around with our friends like you and I are kind of doing now, even via the internet, and and talking and contemplating about things that are really important for human beings. So reading a great book like, uh, you know, Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, or Aristotle's Politics, or Plato's Republic, or Augustine's Confessions, to, to do a, a thoughtful, contemplative, leisurely study of these good things, and I would include mathematics and language and and science, the natural okay. science, these things enrich us and bless us apart from any concern about what we will do for a job. Right. That's great. So, I, I just remembered that we did an episode, I think, in season two with Jared Looney, 
on Skole and the work he's doing at the school he works for, and they have have uh, purposed, and it's a public charter school, I think, they've purposed to incorporate the spirit of Skole, and they're doing a really great job in experimenting and doing some really interesting things at that school. But I do have an episode on that. I just remembered as you were talking. Um, but it is, it's a very important um, part of a classical education. I, I think a very important foundation to what a classical education really ought to be, how we ought to be implementing our, our programs, if you want to call, I don't hate to call them programs, but <laughs> it's a terrible way to put it. But but we really do need to to be talking about within the movement, I think. Maybe, maybe saying this on the podcast will help everybody to think through this. We need to have a classical conference where we talk about how to how to really bring in the spirit of school light into schools, these charter schools and all these schools that are doing it. How do we create that atmosphere. It's hard to do when you've got parents who don't understand and teachers who don't understand it's because it's a lifestyle. It's a different way of thinking about how we learn something. And so this could be a really amazing, let's do a Scully conference, like (laughs) a whole conference in that. Like, what does that mean? What are its implications and how do we actually boots to the ground, make this happen in a school? It's hard. It's a, it's hard because we've inherited a different rhythm uh-huh. for doing school, which is a sense, something like an industrial model. It's very utilitarian. It's it's focused on measurable results all the time, and it tends to involve a lot of test prep, a lot of uh, modern grading that tends to diminish student attention and interest. Sometimes kill it. You know, if you're in if you're going to a class and you know that it's test prep. Uh, how excited yep. do you? Uh, so, it, <laughs> and the the analogy I would use here is two of them. One is the Sabbath. Uh, we are we need to work and rest, work and rest, and we need to bring the Sabbath pattern into education. If I'm speaking especially to your the Christians in your audience, we we are commanded to set one day aside to rest, and then that that spirit of rest that we enter into. We carry with us in some mystical way, even into our work, so that Jesus can say, come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, the yoke means work. Yoke is two oxen pulling a plow. And Jesus is saying, get yoked to me, and you'll find that it's easy. But it's still work, you see. So somehow Christ is saying, you can do work and find it easy. In a, in a sense that's hard to describe, but that comes when we find Jesus as our Sabbath rest, and it's also reinforced by actually taking a single day and not working, but just rest. So why don't we do that in our schools? And so to me, that, right. if there's a ratio, a mathematical ratio, it's one to seven, right? It means, or one to six, six days, six units of active learning, but why isn't there at least one unit in every kind of segment where you're, you're con- you're engaged in contemplation. The second analogy I'd use is Mary and Martha from that passage in Luke uh, 15, I believe it is. That's where, or Luke 10, that's where that's where uh, Martha is very busy, probably preparing a meal. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus says, when Martha accounts, uh, confronts him and says, Jesus, tell my sister to help me, and Christ's response is to say, Martha, Martha, you're anxious about many things or busy about many things, but Mary has chosen what is best, and it won't be taken from her. So we know how to be Martha in schools. And actually what Martha was doing was good, but she was doing a good thing at the wrong time. I, well, that's another one of the books you guys offer. <laughs> I have the Martha book. <laughs> I want to I wanna end our show having you tell our listeners about the resources you have, especially the Classical U classes, and the wonderful books, the, the great the great series books with Aristotle, Augustine. I've read so many of them; they're wonderful. I've had I've already had you know Dr. Hartberg on the Aristotle book on the show. I'm having the Lost Deeds of Learning author uh, Philip Connolly on soon to talk about the Trivium. Um, so I want I and I haven't read the Martha book yet. It's on my shelf. <laughs> it's it's there. I will be reading it soon. 
But uh, I want you to share with our listeners, because I think that your resources are top-notch, gold standard for the work that I'm trying to do, getting out what's the tradition of classical education really look like. Your materials really, uh, in my opinion, meet the gold standard. You have my endorsements. <laughs> um, and I want, I do, before you share that, I want to say one thing to our teachers and homeschoolers who are listening right now, because you said something that really hit home for me personally. You think the way I think. All the years that I homeschooled my children, the, I had one motto, and it was the verse, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Mm -hmm. And every single decision I made, every decision I made for my children, okay, am I going to put them in this sports? Am I going to put them in a homeschool co-op? Am I What curriculum am I going to buy? How am I going to homeschool my kids? I always ran it through the question, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is this the right choice for our family. And that particular Bible verse became my guiding principle for every decision I made as a homeschool mom. And I'm just putting that out there because you brought it up and mm -hmm. there's a lot of homeschool moms listening today. And I, and I really want them to take that verse seriously and use it to pray mm -hmm. every month <laughs> about what decision am I making this month in my homeschool? <laughs> and ha if things are getting crazy and hectic in our family, step back and ask yourself, is my yoke easy? Is my burden light? Is there something I need to cut so that I can recenter myself in, into the right posture of my duty, my work, my yoke as a mom? Um, so anyhow, I appreciate you bringing that voice up because that that's the one piece of advice. I never give advice on my podcast to my homeschool moms. So that's my little, my little, uh, you know, soapbox for them. Um, yeah. so, but let's get into your resources. Go ahead and share with our listeners a little bit about what you have for them. Okay. Uh, I, but I can't help mentioning a, a, a book that is in the same thing, <laughs> which is teaching from rest by Sarah McKenzie. It's a homeschooler's guide to unshakable peace. And she's, addressing the anxiety that new homeschooling moms in particular often have. They need this kind of advice uh, to know how to, to lean on Christ for peace that comes that passes all understanding. Homeschooling moms often think, especially the new ones, that they're not qualified to do what they're going to do. Right. But that's, and it's understandable why, why they think that, but it's just not true except in rare cases. Why? Because first of all, Two things that make the most difference in education are these. Do you actually love your student? That makes a big difference. If the teacher loves his students, things go better. <laughs> and most <laughs> moms love their students, uh, their, their homeschooling uh, kids. And secondly, the second factor is, are you, are you tutoring or teaching a class? Tutoring is the highest form of education. It's the most effective form. This is what you would get if you were lucky to get into Oxford University, where it's essentially one professor for two students. Uh, so you get to tutor, which means you get to customize and adapt, which is what you can do when you tutor. You can't do that with a class of 35. So those two advantages by themselves usually result in a superior education for the student. So I would just say that as a way of encouraging teachers, uh, homeschooling teachers. It doesn't mean you Thank don't... You learning and get better at teaching, but you love your students and you're tutoring them. It's true. Oh, yeah. so resources. Uh, you know, I got into this, not, not planning to, uh, I was a head, head of young head of school and in the, in the, in 19, 1990s thinking, well, could we develop some new uh, curricular materials that might be better for our students? Cause you know, we were using first generation recovery materials. And so we started, we started a small little company, three people, and it was called Classical Academic Press, and that was 22 years ago. And so since then, we've just kept creating uh, curriculum materials and monographs uh, that we think would be a help, a help and a blessing to those coming into this renewal. So it's a labor of love. You know, you don't go into publishing usually because you think you can get rich because it's a hard business to make money at. But we all here are very passionate about the renewal and advance of classical education. So we love what we do and we love our customers. And so you'll see that we have um, three main things. We've got uh, curriculum and monographs. Uh, 
some of those monographs you've mentioned the 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 guide the great guides to uh the great thinkers of education we've we call these the great uh, uh guides to the great thinkers of education we have one for plato aristotle uh we have a cs lewis comenius uh, many others so there's and there's short books of about 60 pages to introduce these thinkers to people who maybe have never encountered them before mainly teachers secondly we have all kinds of curricula and i won't go through all our curricula but we have history we have latin greek uh, uh french spanish we have a writing curriculum called writing and rhetoric we have a grammar i, love, I do love writing and rhetoric a lot it's a very good one yes Thank you. And well-ordered language is uh, English grammar yes. curriculum, a logic curriculum, a rhetoric curriculum. Um, so you can check us out at classicalacademicpress.com. But you mentioned Parent U. Uh, we have a, a, a teacher training site, an online site called Classical U or classicaluniversity.com. And it has 80 recorded courses of veteran classical educators teaching other educators in kind of short form classes uh featuring maybe 10 lectures maybe 20 to 30 minutes each on average but then we have a free section because it's a, a subscription site for like uh like 19 dollars a month you can subscribe and, and it's can... worth its weight in gold it is so good <laughs> thank I you for saying it. that yes it's to a labor of love uh but you can get some <laughs> graduate credits even from templeton honors college there's a number of things we have a number of professors there but also just a lot of veteran teachers who've been doing it for years and we think are great presenters. But on the site is Parent U and Parent U is not a part of the subscription fee. It's 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 free to everybody because we wanted to create some very short form, easy to listen to or view um, videos or, or audios aimed at the new parent who's coming into classical ed, whether it's at a school or homeschool. And right now it's me and Justin Early and I present like five brief videos addressing these questions. You know, what is classical education? What to expect when you come into classical, a classical school or homeschool? Where did classical education come from? <laughs> What's its history? And I do the kind of brief version. Uh, in fact, I'll say I do a better version on those videos than I've done with you. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I had to be more disciplined. <laughs> well, I think they're like 10-minute videos, 10 or 15. They're yeah. really great, yeah. And you can just play it in your car while you're driving. Like, right. It's like a podcast. So I hope they'll yeah. be helpful. Uh, so just go to classicalu.com and then Parent you, And then Justin Early. We met him. He's a dad at a classical Christian school in Richmond, Virginia. He's an attorney who used to be a Chinese missionary, came back, went to law school, went into law practice. And he realized at some point that his family was he was in a rat race and he didn't like it. And he wanted to bring form and liturgy and, and formative practices and rhythms into his home. He has four sons, I think all under the age of eight or so now. And he and his wife just started to study the Christian tradition. What have Christians done to develop household practices that mirrored what we do in church and would mirror a Christian education? And so he wrote a book called Habits of the Household. It was um, a really well-received book. It was one of the, it got an award from Christianity Today, I think. And and then when we met him, he was so articulate and passionate, and so clear that we said we need to. Could we record you just talking about these household habits that any family would want to develop? And he said sure. And he just hit it out of the park with these videos. So we have, he's, we must have like 20 of those clips of him just talking so earnestly as a fellow traveler, not as a condescending lecturer, but as a fellow traveler saying, here's what, what, what I think could help. And those are all available. So I, Oh, that's great. I haven't watched those yet, but I'm excited about it. When you say habits of a household, I'm like, that's my language. I'm Charlotte Mason. I, you yeah. know, oh, yeah. that's what I'm like more and more people. I want to get the message of Habit training is so important <laughs> in your home, in your home. It's so critical to all, everything. Yeah. So this is ex a great. I, I'm just tickled that you came on our podcast. This was um, a huge blessing. And I know our listeners are going to be very, very blessed uh, to have gleaned from your words of wisdom and really, really appreciate uh, your time because I know you're very busy. Well, I am busy, but aren't we all? <laughs> and I, I, I sure appreciate the invitation, and it's been a delightful conversation. Thank you for having me.
All right. Thank you. And uh, in our show notes, there will be links to all of your resources. And what what website do you would you send them to? Yeah, I would send them to three, actually. I forgot to mention uh, Scully Academy, which is an online academy. That's scullyacademy.com. And then Classical U, as in classicaluniversity.com, is our online teacher training platform. And then all of our curricula, including a new history curriculum that we're just releasing called Humanitas. We have the American History High School segment done. I'm really excited about that. It's 100 primary source readings, all curated and introduced and annotated. You would find all of those curricular resources on classicalacademicpress.com. Okay, sounds perfect. Thank you, Dr. Perrin. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven. 